Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and looking on page 848 in the Church Bibles, and we're looking at verses 18 down through verse 27. Mark 12 at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Many of you may be familiar uh, with the Angus Reed Institute. Uh, the Angus Reed Institute uh, will poll Canadians on a whole host of topics and issues. And back in 2015, the Angus Reed Institute surveyed Canadians about their beliefs about the afterlife. And in that survey, it showed a divided or a, a divergent uh, response amongst Canadians. It said that 42% of Canadians believe in life after death. So almost half of Canadians believe that after we die, there will be life uh, that goes beyond the grave. Uh, another segment, about a third, 35% of Canadians said they weren't sure about life after death. And the remaining 23% said that they did not believe in life after death. So that question, is there going to be life after we die, is a question that gets different answers amongst Canadians. And the way that Canadians are going to answer that question is going to be reflective of, one, what we believe about the nature of God. Is there a God? But then secondly, do we believe or do we have grounds to believe that there will be life after death from God's word. And those, the way that we answer those questions is going to shape the way a person uh, wrestles with this topic themselves. This morning we're turning back in Mark's gospel and we're turning to an incident where Jesus himself was asked to weigh in on the nature of life after death. Will there be a resurrection? Uh, and Jesus himself uh, teaches that there will be. 
And we want to look at how Jesus addresses this issue and how we are to live believing in a resurrection ourselves. We want to look at these verses in two thoughts. We want to look at, first, the challenge to believing in life after death. And then secondly, we want to think about the confirmation that there is life after death. Well, first, uh, there is the challenge. You remember that in Mark's gospel, one of the uh, developments that has happened in Jesus's public ministry is, is that Jesus uh, came to the temple and he challenged the religious authorities. Jesus overturned the tables. He drove out the money changers. Uh, he wouldn't let people pass through to offer their sacrifices. Jesus was doing more than just disrupting uh, what was going on in the temple. Jesus was making a public statement. He was telling them that God denounced their worship practices as well, that what they were doing was not pleasing in God's sight. And so if the, uh, and we know the religious authorities were hostile to Jesus before, this only escalated things. They were becoming more hostile towards Jesus because he was challenging their authority. And this whole issue of authority continues to carry forward in Mark's gospel. You remember they asked Jesus by what authority he was doing what he did. Uh, Jesus himself gave a, a parable uh, teaching them about the nature of his authority, that he is the son uh, who is entrusted with the Lord's vineyard, that uh, Jesus was teaching them about his own person. As we come to Mark 12, though, you'll notice that Jesus' authority here is really under uh, investigation in different ways. Different religious groups are coming to Jesus and they're challenging Jesus to speak on matters that show forth his authority. And you can see this as you read through Mark 12 because in each of these incidents, Jesus is addressed by a different group and in each occasion, Jesus is addressed as teacher. They come to Jesus asking or expecting Jesus to weigh in on a matter and to give insight as to how we should live. Last time we looked at how Jesus was questioned about whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar. It was a political issue that they were challenging Jesus with and they were trying to trap him. This morning we want to look at another question that was posed to Jesus. And this one was a theological one. It was a matter of beliefs. It was a matter of what do you believe about the grand questions and the grand issues of life about God, but also of God's purpose, and whether we will have life after we die. And so uh, it is that question that we are really tackling this morning. Uh, the people that come to Jesus with this challenge are known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a very wealthy group of men. They were the aristocrats uh, in uh, the first century. They were people of great political influence, and they had a lot of influence from about 135 BC onwards till Jerusalem was destroyed. They were a wealthy group, uh, and they had strong political ties. But we know less about the Sadducees than we do of some of these other groups, like the Pharisees. The Sadducees, uh, uh, are, we know very little about them. But as one Jewish historian from this time period, a man named Josephus explains, we can summarize the Sadducees by what they didn't believe. 
And Josephus summarized this group of men by three things they didn't believe. One, they didn't believe that the soul existed after death. They did not grant that there is life after death. Two, they did not grant, they did not believe that there were any rewards or punishments in the next life, which is a consequence of not believing in life after death. And then thirdly, uh, they uh, did not believe that history was being guided to any predetermined end. There was nothing that was uh, shaping all of history towards a particular goal. Instead, they focused on uh, human free will and just making choices in our own life. And so this group of men uh, are really summarized here by their denials But that's actually how the book of Acts speaks of them as well. If you turn to the book of Acts in Acts 23, it says the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So this is a very different group than the Pharisees, but people that had influence because of their high social standing in the first century. And so these people who don't believe in the resurrection who don't believe in the spirit world, who don't believe in rewards or punishments in the afterlife, come to Jesus with a question about the afterlife, which is important to understand because when they're asking this question, they're not asking it from the grounds of people who embrace it themselves. They're asking this question in order to suggest just how inherently problematic such a belief really is. They're trying to dismantle the belief system by posing a problematic scenario. Do you see, Jesus, what believing in this actually does? It it just creates all kinds of problems. And so their theoretical scenario is intended to undermine the belief in the afterlife itself. So this is who is coming to Jesus with the question. But the the challenge itself is described in this hypothetical scenario. They say, Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the, uh, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So the Sadducees here are appealing to an Old Testament stipulation. There was a passage in the Old Testament that did talk about Uh, What would happen if uh, a widow had no children? And this stipulation that was arranged where a a surviving brother would take that widow to be his wife in order for her to have offspring, in order for there to be an heir, a male heir in the family line. This is found in Deuteronomy 25. But why was this even there in the Old Testament law? It was there for a a couple of different reasons. One of them was simply the mercy embedded into it. Because if you were a widow living in the ancient world, you're you're vulnerable now uh, to the point of being possibly subject to begging for the rest of your life. That without the means of support, economically, financially, you have no support system. So to be connected in a family, to be married, is going to make you a lot uh, more secure in society. Part of the reason we could say is that it is an act of mercy uh, to the widow uh, who would otherwise be reduced to begging. 
But there's more than that. It was meant to preserve the family line. Uh, the purpose was to ensure that a man would not be blotted out uh, from the people of Israel or blotted, having his name blotted out from the line of Israel. The Old Covenant stressed the importance of preserving the family line, of preserving uh, uh, an understanding of the seed of Abraham because God's promises were all wrapped up in it. And so they were to take measures to make sure that this uh, was not happening, uh, to make sure uh, that uh, 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 the offspring of uh, Abraham would continue. But here they come uh, with this challenge uh, to Jesus saying, if this is what Moses was describing to happen, whose wife would this woman be if she was married to each of those seven brothers, one after another, and each one dies off, and she marries the next brother, but she never has any children, and then they all die. They say, in the afterlife, Jesus, who is this woman married to? Because she was married to each of the seven at different times. And so here's the problem that they're posing to Jesus. Doesn't this become problematic? Doesn't this become incoherent? Uh, to believe in an afterlife based on what Moses had said in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. So there's uh, this challenge being posed by the Sadducees about the nature of the resurrection. But in response to this, Jesus upholds the truth of the resurrection. You'll see there that Jesus uh, is very blunt and direct with them. Uh, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Normally, uh, when we're talking with someone that we disagree with, uh, we might try and couch our answer uh, in a little bit more indirect terms or maybe soften the blow. Uh, we might try and say someone, phrase it in the form of a question. Have you thought about this? Or we might counter by simply putting forward other information. I thought I heard this about uh, the weather. I thought I heard this about what happened in the news. Uh, you try to clarify things uh, to try and bring an understanding and to bridge. The only time we would talk so directly like you are wrong is one when we believe it's very clear that they're wrong and two that it's very serious. We're not going to start a fight with someone because they got the weather report wrong. We're not going to turn to them and say you are quite, quite wrong about the weather. Instead, we would try to clarify. We would try to uh, uh, come together, to reason together with them. But Jesus here is talking to them in very strong terms because one, he is very certain of their error, but two, because it's very serious what their error is. Their error is about the afterlife. Their error is about understanding the nature of human destiny. Their error is understanding the purposes of God. Their error is in knowing how to live in this world. And so Jesus is very strong in his language here as he's confronting them in their problems. But notice here, uh, Jesus doesn't just say, you're wrong. He begins to unpack for them how it is that they are wrong. That their, their, their whole approach is actually the problem. Many of you, you young people, are doing math in school. And maybe when you're doing a math problem, your teacher gets you to write out your answer, to show your work. 
I can remember being young and the teacher would say, you have to show your work when you're doing your long division. You have to show your work when you're doing your multiplication. And you think, I have to show my work? But the teacher has a reason for doing that. Because if by chance you get the question wrong, the teacher can see how you went about the whole issue. They can, they can quickly detect, is it just a miscalculation? Did they forget to carry the one over? Did they make a, a, an error in one of their steps, just a slip up? Or the teacher can look and say, they didn't understand the question. They didn't even approach it in the right way. They need, they need to look at this differently if they're ever going to understand how to do it right. And so when a math teacher says to show your work, they're, they're uncovering how the person approaches the question. Jesus here is showing that the way that they approach the whole topic of the afterlife is fundamentally wrong. It's not just that they got the wrong answer when they said no afterlife. But Jesus is saying you won't get the right answer based on the way you approach the whole topic. And so Jesus here exposes their approach is wrong in two ways. He says it's one, because they don't understand the scriptures. And two, it's because they don't understand the power of God. What does Jesus mean when he says that? He's telling them uh, that they, they are not being shaped by what God's word says. Now, if you look in the Old Covenant scriptures, there are many passages that actually speak about life after death. We can turn, for instance, to Isaiah 26. It says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Job 19 says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Or we can turn to Daniel chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of death shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There are many passages you could turn to in the Old Testament where the people of God were to see that there was a faith that went beyond this life. That God who created life was a God who would restore life even after death. But Jesus actually turns their attention to a different passage but no less significant. He actually turns their attention to one of the most foundational passages in the Old Covenant, a passage that was the revelation of God's name, the Lord. I am who I am is the passage about the bush. When Moses met with the presence of the Lord and God revealed to him uh, who his name is, When I tell the people of Israel that God has met with me, what do I tell them his name is? And the Lord said, tell them, I am who I am. This is a passage that every Israelite knew. It was was foundational for knowing the God of Scripture, for knowing the God who had redeemed them from the land of Egypt. And Jesus here turns to this passage uh, to make his point. God, when he revealed himself to Moses, revealed himself as the God who is self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal in his being. But as he came to Moses, he not only said, I am who I am. 
He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When God said that, he was not just saying, I'm the Lord of history, that I have dealt with these men in the past. He was doing something more than that. He was saying that he is the God who has bound himself to these men and that he has made promises to these men that outstretched their lives, but that they would be fulfilled in time and he would be faithful to these men. God who had made these covenant promises had bound himself to them And nothing was going to separate God from no longer identifying with them. As one person has said, it established a relationship. And once that relationship with God is established, it cannot be ended, even by death. So God continues to identify with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He continues to associate with them. That even though they have died... They have not been forgotten. Even though they have died, they are still known to God. Even though they have died, the Lord is still with them. And so their existence is still there. And so it is in this way that the Lord reveals himself to Moses. And so God's promise uh, is uh, something that is to shape the way that Moses and Israel thinks about God. God made promises to Abraham. And he's bound himself to Abraham so that even when Abraham dies, God's relationship with Abraham continues. This is what uh, Jesus is emphasizing here. Uh, It is not just highlighting that he has known them in the past, but that in some way uh, this continues, this relationship remains. Jesus goes on there in verse 26 and he says, have you not read? Uh, the, the passage. Have you not read in the book of Moses the passage about the, book, uh, about the burning bush? When Jesus says this, he's really putting it before them. How is it that you think about this whole topic of the afterlife? Because scripture is meant to be the factor that shapes your answer. Uh, scripture is to be informing us about how we think about these things. That God's word is the source of knowing how uh, to think uh, uh, through this question. You think back to that Angus Reid Institute poll. One third of Canadians don't know whether or not there is life after death. One third. But ask yourself, if you're in that one third, how am I planning to go about answering that question? Or do I plan on remaining in uncertainty? Do I have a process for trying to come to a conclusion? And have I even consulted? Have I even read what the scriptures say? Have I, have I sought out an answer from these things? Do I think God's word has a place in shaping how I think about these grand questions of life after death? If, uh, so we have to be uh, shaped by the scriptures. Again, think of the Sadducees here. In their question when they came to Jesus and they said, this man married the woman and then the brother married the woman and then the next brother married the woman. Their whole question is shaped by actually a, a misguided assumption. 
which Jesus exposes, doesn't he? He says, you are quite wrong, for you do not know the scriptures. And then he says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus is simply highlighting their assumption about the afterlife was wrong. It was not rooted in scripture itself, but in their own imaginations. They assumed that the afterlife simply meant the continuation of things as they were before death. That whatever was true before death would carry on after death. And Jesus is saying that's actually not true. That's not what Moses taught. That's not what the scriptures teach. It's a different quality of life altogether. The, the resurrection life is the restoration and the destination of God's purposes. It's not merely continuation, but it is the completion of God's work. That's why John Stott, they had missed, uh, John Stott says, they had missed the point that resurrection life is not simply the projection of life on a timeless scale, it is a different quality altogether. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels, but Jesus didn't shy away from saying they'll be like the angels. Because Jesus was grounded on the integrity of God's word. Jesus could say things even when his opponents weren't ready to accept them. Because he knew where he was turning to. He trusted in the word of God. And so these opponents, these Sadducees, they don't know the scriptures themselves. Because they come to the scriptures with an attitude of unbelief. They come to these scriptures lording over the scriptures, only accepting what they want to accept and not embracing what it speaks about. The Sadducees, the Sadducees are a, a people that want to maintain a religion in their life while denying the supernatural. That I want to have something that organizes my life, that tells me how I should live, gives morality, gives a sense of meaning, gives a sense of uh, structure to my life, while all the while not acknowledging God's power. And Jesus here is exposing that by saying, you haven't actually been shaped by the scriptures, and you don't actually know the power of God. When Jesus says that they don't know the power of God, he's exposing uh, their, their unbelief. The real problem is not the one caused by the Sadducees, uh, but uh, the fact that the Sadducees uh, have approached uh, uh, this whole topic without acknowledging uh, the power of God. This mistake was not simply the conclusion that they drew on the matter of the resurrection. It was what they approached uh, with the, uh, the, the shaping of all of God's word. They did not acknowledge the power of God in shaping their perspective. The Sadducees then didn't believe in a future resurrection. But stop and think. What is so hard to believe about a resurrection? The Sadducees do not grant life after death. But if there's a God who's created all things by the power of his word, if there's a beginning to this universe that we have to be able to explain, if we're prepared to grant that a God has begun all things and given life, what's so hard to believe that God would restore life after death? 
If we were sitting here this morning and we, we sympathize with the Sadducees and we, we don't grant that there's life after death, ask ourselves, is it because I don't believe there's a God? Is it because I don't think God would do that? Or because I don't think that scripture says that God will do that? And that begins to show us our own posture. What is our position on these things? Have we worked through them? Am I convinced that there's a God? What is this God like? Jesus says this God is the God who is eternally self-sufficient. The God who is ever-present. The God who is eternally the same. And yet who has created a people unto himself. I am the God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. And I will deliver my people. Tell that to the people of Israel. And so as you're sitting here this morning. And you're thinking about this topic of the resurrection. This is a serious issue. But it's one that is meant to shape us. Are we people that are being shaped by God's word? Are we people that simply assume things on our own initiative? Are we just going through things without actually coming under the teaching of God's word and understanding the power of God himself? Resurrection is central to Christianity. You don't have Christianity without it. It's right there in our Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection uh, of the dead. We believe not only that Christ was raised on the third day, but we believe in the future resurrection of all people. But that creed, which is foundational to Christian beliefs, begins with what? I believe in God Almighty. I believe in the power of God. That's what makes the resurrection plausible. Because I know the power of God. Doing these works are not beyond plausibility. And because God has said that they will happen, we can embrace them in faith. Jesus not only defends the truthfulness of the resurrection, but Jesus himself was resurrected on the, uh, after he was crucified on the cross. On the third day, he was raised by the power of God. But the resurrection is not simply a random event that Christians talk about. The resurrection is central because it is the declaration that God's power triumphs over man's sin. It's, it's the demonstration that there is forgiveness of sins and not simply condemnation over our sins. It's, it's the guarantee that just as Jesus has been raised, so there is a future resurrection for others. He is the first fruits of the future resurrection. And so as we think about what Jesus did, he died on the cross, but he died to pay the penalty of sin. That by nature we are under that curse of sin ourselves and that we stand exposed to God's judgment. But Jesus came to give his life in order to deliver us from that curse uh, through uh, his work. So God Almighty is able to save. The penalty of sin is death, but God has uh, accomplished victory through the resurrection of the Son from the grave. Jesus ends this exchange with the Sadducees 
uh, by returning to what he said at the beginning. He said at the beginning, you're wrong. But now he comes back full circle and he says, you are quite wrong. You're very wrong. Your error was not just a miscalculation. It's not just you forgot to carry the one. Your whole approach was fundamentally flawed. Because you did not come under the teaching of God's word. And because you were not shaped by an understanding of the power of God. And so Jesus here stresses the seriousness of their error. Getting the resurrection wrong is serious because it has eternal consequences. If we get God's work of salvation wrong, then we remain in our sins. It's only through the resurrection that we can be delivered from our sins and to be spared of the second death. It's only as we trust in Jesus that we can share in his triumph. And so Jesus here stresses the importance of getting this right. Do we understand the power of God? Or are we living like Sadducees ourselves? Are we trying to have a religion in our life, but denying the supernatural? Just something to do on the weekend? Or is this something that we are commemorating and reflecting on God's work? God has conquered death. He has conquered sin, and we can believe that because the Son was raised from dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about this question that was posed to Jesus, we pray, Lord, that it would cause us to examine our own uh, uh, thoughts on this matter, that we would not be people who simply assume but people who have heard and who have considered what your word teaches us and people who have lived uh, acknowledging the power of our God. Lord, we're thankful that Jesus who came into this world uh, to give his life uh, did so to pay the penalty of sin. But we thank you as well that our hope is not in vain, but has been demonstrated to be faithful through the resurrection of his body. So go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name.